You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, and thanks everyone for joining us. Interesting week we had this week, Morag. Uh, I know we've been talking about that article uh, uh, from Google and uh, James Damore, who uh, did that ton-page treatise on uh, women, etc. What 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 ripples did you hear uh, about all of that? What'd you think? Well, I don't know. It's explosive, isn't it? Certainly, certainly social media and the headlines are going wild with it. And in many ways, I have to roll my eyes. Are we still having this conversation about whether women can do certain roles as well as men, especially when it comes to tech and engineering? It's so disappointing and frustrating to see yet again such a fixed and narrow mindset to something that we know is misguided. You know, it's really true. I mean, as you know, I was, uh, you know, a talent, uh, the chief talent officer, Hewlett Packard. You know, we had 330,000 employees and you went below the top of the house, you know, past the VP ranks. And we had lots of women and lots of women engineers, um, you know, who were highly um, valued for what they did in their roles, but just couldn't seem to break through. I I do think that there's an epidemic out there uh, in Silicon Valley, but that that attitude uh, just today is is kind of appalling. It is. um, is. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and the statistics make poor reading, despite all the decades of focus on diversity, less than 6% of Fortune 500 chief executives um, are female, and less than 15% of corporate board members are female. And it seems to me that the conversation, despite all the care and attention, just hasn't moved the needle. And we need to broaden it. It's not just the binary male-female discussion. It's inclusivity for everybody, I think, is the difference of the 21st century. Diversity, as you articulated in our book, it's always been there. We are a diverse planet. It's the how do we make people feel like they belong when they get to wherever it is that they want to go, whether that's the senior levels or a certain career track that they want to take. It's not just getting them in the door. It's making us want to stay once we get there. Yeah, I, I, and that, that that's absolutely true. And the women are deciding not to stay because it's so onerous having to work in some of those environments, and particularly in financial services as well. So technology isn't the only place where, where this is going on. So it's been a heck of a news week. And also, you know, we talk about Wells Fargo in our book, and boy, it doesn't seem like they've learned their lesson either. You know, <laughs> here they are back after firing their CEO. They're back uh, with bogus uh, insurance policies for people. And, and overcharging, et cetera. So, I, you know, you do have to scratch your head. You really do. 
we don't certainly don't seem to be learning from history. And in fact, I had a conversation with a potential new client this morning who was looking to build, uh, grow their technology team, most of whom are actually female, which is a good start to the conversation. Yeah. Unfortunately, the conversation then meandered into dress code and uh, how the women weren't manicuring their hands and brushing their hair appropriately. And wow. I'm listening to this and I say, well, do you have the same dress code challenges with the men? And it was immediately blown off as a, oh, no, well, they're business casual, so anything kind of goes. And I'm just thinking it's these double standards and, in this case, an unconscious bias that is having a huge impact on our ability to make a difference in the workplace. Yeah. But, you know, here's what's great. There are some enlightened companies out there. As you know, we have a a client that that really is bringing us in to talk about diversity in a a really heavy uh, white male dominated uh, or uh, uh, industry and to really start working with their leaders to open their eyes to that unconscious bias. So, you know, not all is bad, but it is kind of shocking that's that 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 we are where we are, which kind of leads us to our guest today. I'm very excited to have Lee MJ Elias with us today. He is uh, really just moved back to the United States from uh, being in London, had a great stint in London, and you probably already know that hockey was not really a huge uh, sport over there. And Lee, who is a coach and a uh, really brilliant thinker about leadership, um, made this into an extremely winning team and made people really excited about the sport. And uh, he's just recently moved back and he has a new book out. His his former book, which uh, I'd spoken to him about earlier, uh, was Think Like a Fan was just brilliant. It was just a brilliant outside-in way to think about your organization. And now he's got his new book called Win. And what I really find compelling about this book and love about this book is that, and love about what Lee does, frankly, is that he takes sports teams' mentality and drives that into business practices. And he's really able to use great sports examples uh, about how you really make a winning team and how you build a bond. And what I loved was the digital community. So welcome, Liam. Thrilled to have you on. We're thrilled to have you on. No, it's great to be here. It's it's actually great to be back in the United States as well to do one of these shows, uh, not five hours ahead or five hours behind. But it's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that that that's great. We're we're really thrilled. And Morag, I think you're you have a burning question for Lee. Well, Lee, I mean, you touched or Linda touched on it in terms of her introduction that certainly ice hockey is not a big sport in the UK. We're all about the cricket and the real football, soccer. <laughs> so what was the, the biggest culture shock for you in spending time living abroad and working abroad? What most surprised you in your time in the UK? Yeah, it's a great question to start off on. You know, when we moved to the United Kingdom, uh, it was a military move. My wife is in the United States Air Force. So uh, we had some choice on where we were going, uh, but not a lot. And all of a sudden, we're moving from America to a brand new country with a whole new set of rules, a whole new set of people. And a different language. Just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, I, I've been told that we have butchered the Queen's English, so I'm still uh, dealing with that over here. I have a new respect for it now. Let's put it that way. But, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the biggest culture shock that I had uh, from, a, from a personal point of view was actually the respect for different types of work in that country in the sense that uh, service work over there is highly respected. Just having a job is highly respected, whereas in America, there's a little bit more of what I feel is an entitlement 
type atmosphere. Um, so from a, from a standpoint of, of that, uh, that was shocking. Uh, the other thing that was shocking was how wonderful the people were. Uh, and not that we were expecting anything <laughs> less, but uh, everyone was so welcoming and uh, I, I felt like I fit right in. I spent most of my time in hockey in Peterborough, um, which was uh, has become a second home to me. And uh, I miss it to this day. My wife and I always talk about wanting to go back to the UK to, to see our friends and, and, and be with our family again. So you were living in my neck of the woods. So I was in Bury St. Edmunds and around that area. So I know it quite well. And I know Peterborough too, but welcome back to Pennsylvania. So excited yeah. to learn more and having started to read win what every team needs to know to create a championship culture. Um, having written one book, what made you decide to write another one? What made you decide to write this one in particular? Yeah, when I finished Think Like a Fan, uh, which was an endurance test to write a book, uh, it gave me this newfound confidence that I could continue to do it. And having been a uh, ice hockey coach or just a coach in general, um, I had a philosophy on team bonding and and how I felt teams needed to operate and things that were missing that I started to realize really was not prevalent uh, in both the workplace and the sports world in terms of uh, how I was approaching it. And I had this just passionate moment where I wanted to get it on paper. And in fact, uh, my publisher, uh, whose name is Mariana from Aloha Publishing, uh, I, I called her because Think Like a Fan had just come out. And I said, look, I, I need to get this on paper. And she told me, look, take a week, write what you need to write. And I wrote this entire book in a month. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I want to know what yeah. Gatorade you were drinking and how you did yeah, that. Yeah. That's impressive. Lots, lots Absolutely. Of Jeez. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, you know, the pen went to paper, it flew, flew out of me and, uh, and I, it, I'm very proud of it. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm more proud of it, that it's, it flows. People have read it. They have nothing but good things to say about it and that they've applied it. And it, it speaks to them in a way that they've never been spoken to before in terms of how important a team bond is and then how they've utilized it on their places of business or their sports teams. Well, what I particularly liked was that underpinning of trust and the importance of the relationships within the team. Uh, research from Google has done the same, looking at what differentiates the average from high-performing teams. And it's not just smarts and being very skilled or a talented athlete. It is the quality of the relationship, because if I trust you and if we're pulling in the same direction, I am more willing to take informed risks. I'm more willing to give candid feedback, etc. So tell me more about you. Talk about it as a key concept in the book what made you start there and what advice do you have for listeners how do you go about building trust on a corporate team yeah you know in any relationship whether it be corporate team sports team uh you know even family uh the the foundation for it has to be trust in my opinion because if you don't have that how can you possibly move forward together as a unit uh, and, you know, one of the funny things when I speak to teams is and it's one of the first things I do, as you alluded to, I, I ask them to define the word trust, define the word trust for me. And uh, everyone has a very hard time doing it. And do what you? they realize is, yeah, it, it, most of the time I get the word trust in the definition, <laughs> which yeah, is not good. No, it's not quite you know? the same, is it? You get that glazed yeah. look over because it it's that nebulous, soft, fluffy. And well, I know it when I see it. OK, exactly. but tell me more about what it looks like then. And how do you go exactly. about it? Yeah, and what it alludes to is that trust is actually—it's more of a feeling than it is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a word. And there's levels to it, and that's another thing. You know, I, I always joke that you'll trust the mailman or the postman to bring the mail, but you wouldn't trust that person to watch your kids out of the blue because that's not the level of trust you've established. Mm -hmm. And then when you when you when you talk about that, that there's different levels of tough tr trust, there's different types of trust. 
Then you take into account when you're looking at a business or a sports team, you might have 25 to hundreds of people all with different definitions of what that word means based on their upbringings, based on where they've lived in their life. So if you don't establish that, what trust means to my team or trust means to my corporation, my business, well, you're starting in the dark. And then things can happen. Uh, People start thinking favoritism is happening by accident. Uh, People start breaking rules by accident or not by accident. Uh, you know, leaders cannot effectively lead if that trust is not there. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but it is the keystone for every single relationship. And again, I, I say in the book that, you know, we don't, we don't fall out of trust. We don't lose trust. You know, you break trust, you break it. And, and yeah. it's one of the only words when you, when you talk about emotion stuff, you use the word break because it hurts people when it's not there. Uh, so establishing it is just the consummate foundation, the starting point. And once that exists, then as a group, as a team, you can begin to move forward towards some of the other aspects that are needed to create uh, community, bond, uh, you know, the, all the words that go into that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that, Lee, because uh, I remember years ago I was a, uh, an advocate and did exercises with people around trust and at, at a time where people didn't really think that much about organizational culture. They thought trust was really a fluffy word. And the first time I asked him about it, you know, it was like deer in the headlights, you know, oh, this is not something we talk about at work. But frankly, it's fundamental to getting work done. And that's why I, what I think is so compelling about the fact that you start with trust. And it also shows me that, you know, times have changed and that people are more willing to talk about trust and are more willing to see how much it impacts you know, their daily relationships with just about anybody, whether it's family, whether it's uh, um, the mailman, as you say, or people that they work with. But, you know, this leads me to another question. Uh, You know, we started the show talking about the diversity and how this really has not, the needle just plain has not moved. And I can't help but think that uh, in a a team situation that you're dealing with a lot of diverse perspectives, nationalities, uh, a lot of diversity, and getting people together to really act in a communal bonded way to win, how to be a challenge. How did you do that? How did you garnish or harness that diversity? Yeah, you know, when it comes to that, uh, there's a phrase I like to use. I like to blur boundaries. All right. And what happens is when anybody comes into a group with a preconceived notion about somebody else, which is inevitable, no matter no matter where you're from, who you are, what your upbringing was, it's inevitable. You're going to have some preconceived notions. Uh, my job is to to not ex- exactly ignore that, but to give the team, to give the group a common goal or a common mission uh, uh, that's established by that group to work towards. And then once that's established, it's to talk with the group about this is what we're going to do together as a community to achieve this goal. And a lot of times, especially with sports teams, this starts with doing uh, physical exercises, uh, things like group jumping jacks, where I say to them all, if we don't do this in unison, uh, we're, we're going to do it again. And this is this is borrowed heavily from the military. A lot of the tactics that I use are based on military tactics to help grow soldiers into the group that they are. I believe them to be the greatest team in the world. So what ends up happening is if, if my team starts arguing or if there's problems, we start over until they're doing it in unison. And again, it begins to blur 
all the boundaries because I, I personally don't care. <laughs> I don't care where you're from, what you've done. That's not the point. What's important to us as a team is our goal. All right? What's important to us as a team is that we move forward together. Uh, and this also jumps heavily into a culture of accountability, which uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in the show. Yeah, today. we're, we're going to go to break, uh, Lee, but let's yeah. talk about that. Accountability is such an important thing. And, and I look around today and I see a lot of leaders pointing fingers, blaming everybody else and not yep. taking any personal accountability. And I, personally, I think that's a real problem. So it is. Stay with us. We're coming back. We're talking to Lee Elias. We're talking about the concept of when his new book. And uh, there's some surprising insights that uh, Lee is going to share with us in our next segment. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. So, Lee, we were talking about the whole notion of accountability. And, you know, the last time you and I spoke, it, it, it just seems as though we see a leadership model that has just been hard to die, uh, mm-hmm. where command and control is, is uh, the predominant approach, even in today's latest research that that is the predominant approach of leaders. And we also see a lot of leaders walking away from, it's not my fault, I didn't do it, it's their problem. Uh, Who do we find that we're gonna string up over this issue? Instead of really working with the group to figure out accountability and learning. And I know you have a lot to say about this. I do, I do. You know, it, it's it's funny when when you talk about that. I, I've worked for organizations like that with that mentality myself, and uh, you know, I've really seen too, both sides of it. I, I bet. I'm, I'm sure you've also worked with with organizations that have this problem. Right. And you know, what I find is this. You know, you said in the beginning of the show, I apply a sports mentality to business, uh, and obviously sports. Right. So. When I think of accountability, and I always describe this as the perfect team. And when I say team right now, I'm talking about any team. It doesn't have to just be sports. And a perfect team to me is one in which it's a positive solution outcome for every situation. And what I mean by that is this. When you look at a sports game and uh, there's a last-second goal and the team loses, I always tell my teams that we didn't lose because of the last-second goal. We lost because of the entire uh, way the game was played over the course of 60 minutes as a group. That's why we lost this game, not because of one play. It's never one thing. Uh, it's very easy for coaches and, and managers to run with fear. It's your fault. You lost us the game. That does not have positive results for the group. All you're telling your group is to fear me, uh, that you better not mess up, and they operate in fear. Um, and you know, when you get into the power of positive versus negative persuasion, we know that positive persuasion is much more powerful. So one of the things I try and teach is to be accountable with every situation. If there's a mistake made, I don't wanna focus on the mistake. I wanna focus on how to find a solution as a group so that mistake is not made again. And I want my team to have the mentality of if someone makes a mistake, what can we do as a group to help that person be better for the team for next time? And that's the approach that I find is not taken by a lot of people. It's let people drown and let people fall. 
It is. It's interestingly, I was listening to that and remembering one client who was desperate to build a culture of, well, desperate's a strong word, but looking to create a culture of accountability. And so they came up with a strap line that they thought would help do that. And the strap line was, one throat to choke. Wow. And, on, and I know, and I looked at it and I go, well, I get what you mean. You want clear accountability. Who owns this decision? Who owns this project? But one throat to choke, really? Is that what's <laughs> yeah. going to drive the right behavior? And so to Linda's point, that command and control actually tends to stifle or allow us to abdicate responsibility. Um, I was at a, a meeting with a, another uh, organization and team yesterday, and their excuse at the moment for not taking action is because that person over there is not playing yep. nice with the rest of the team. So why should I do anything until they change? And so how do you do that? How do you get to the team accountability, especially when you might have one or more cancers on the team, toxic behaviors and attitudes that are impacting the end goal? Absolutely. Well, I think the mistake that a lot of groups take with accountability is thinking that I'll just tell them what it is and we'll be accountable. And and it doesn't work that way. There's several levels <laughs> to being accountable. I love that that one throat to choke. That reminds me of uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Exactly. Right, right. That's such you know? a great line. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it doesn't make any sense. It's like throwing around a compliment like a sledgehammer. So, right. Uh, you know what? What do we? It, this this almost is is reminiscent of what we talked about with trust. It's you have to establish to the team what is accountability. And accountability in a team sense is looking for solutions instead of looking for mistakes. To everybody, it's easy to find mistakes, but to find the solution, to learn, that's the key. So the first thing I do is establish that, and then I try and uh, have my players, have my teams, have my have the people I work with understand that there's levels to this. You know, the bottom level or a lack of accountability is it's your fault, not my fault. Right. And then there's several steps from there to the top. Uh, you know, it, it could go from that level to, wow, I'm glad that wasn't me that made the mistake. And then it could go up to, oh, man, that's too bad. That person made the mistake. Maybe I could have done something to help out to win the game for us. And then it goes up even higher to what did we not do as a team to prepare for this so that it could have been better? And then, you know, the top level being is as a group, we need to find a solution for this problem so it doesn't happen again. I need to support my teammate. Um, I, I always love the saying, and we do this in every locker room uh, I've ever been in, in every business. It's, you're not here just for you. You're here for the person next to you as well. It's, and when you yeah. adopt that mentality, especially in sports, you know, one of the unique things about sports that's a little bit different from business is there, there is no time to waste in a game to no. feel bad, to to reminisce and say, oh, why did we? You have to move on in that moment. And if yeah. you're not moving on in an accountable way, and you're not moving on for the person next to you, you're not going to have that edge at the end of the game. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want my team to be a band of, of brothers or sisters, no matter what the situation is. You know, you said something that I think is really important. You know, the old coaching model often, you know, was very uh, derisive. Uh, and it still is in some uh, in some sports. It's very uh, very derisive, but uh, divisive. But what what I hear you talking about is, uh, you know, that positive view. What what and and I talked to Sir Clive uh, Woodward, whom I know you know, who and, and I think you know him too, Morag. He won the uh, your football championship uh, over in in uh, London for, for for the UK and what he said he would do which I thought was so great they played the plays play after play and uh, that they had videoed and they said what did we do really great on this 
And uh, what do we need to replicate? How did we yep. really work together great as a team? And I thought, boy, that it's, it's not a subtle shift. It's a big shift. And uh, he's built an incredible team. Yeah, you, you know, one of the things about teams is you have different personalities. Some people are shy. Some people are loud. Uh, depending on whether you're in professional sports, collegiate sports, or youth sports, uh, some people are focused on money when other people are just focused on being on the team. Uh, and when you mix all of these together, if there's not that community, which you're speaking of right now on the team, it, it won't matter. Winning will not take place. And this all comes back to, to the importance of the bond. You know, I spoke uh, to you once before about the three things I think need to be present to win are talent and tactics are the first two. And I think every, every coach, every leader knows that. You have to have talent, you have to have tactics. And the third thing is this bond must exist. And what you're talking about is a person who has created that uh, bond. And I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they think that that bond comes organically. And it really yes. doesn't. It doesn't. Um, in, in sports teams, you may have a group that's closer naturally, but it is not a natural occurrence. You have to create it. You have to nurture it, maintain it. And then every single season, at least in sports, uh, in business, it would go by quarters or you know fiscal years. It changes. It, it evolves. New people come in. Old people leave. Uh, the storylines change. You reach goals. You want to move on. So again, it's something that must be created. And, and leaders that create that for their teams tend to find that goals get reached faster and more positively, and there's more drive. Yeah, I agree with you, Lee, that it's a proactive, it needs care and attention. And it goes back to your original conversation around trust and building that sense of team. Because when I talk to people about trust, I'll hear, well, you have to prove that you're worthy of my trust. It has to be earned. Whereas I'm thinking, no, you have to give it from the get-go. Because when you then follow up with how long does it take to earn your trust, people will say, oh, two years, three years. And in modern (laughs) business, you don't have two or three years to get to a high-performing team. To your point, you have a quarter, maybe two quarters if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah, that's and, glacial, and ironically, Mariah. two to glacial. three years is glacial. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy. Right. But then when you think about it, there's team within team. So that sense of that's identity, when I put the jersey on, I think it's easy to lose sight. It's why we see politics, silos and turf wars in many organizations where finance is fighting sales, is fighting operations, is fighting HR, and they lose sight to the corporate jersey that they're all part of. And that yeah. team on team fighting takes away time, energy, tactics, and talent from achieving the corporate goals and putting those scores uh, on the scoreboard. How do you see that connection, Lee? Well, I I think there's a lot of things there. One is, I love that you mentioned teams within teams, because that's something Mm -hmm. that I tap on. You know, when you apply trust to a team, the coaching staff is a team within the team. And I always tell the coaching staff that you are the pillar of trust for the group. So if we don't look like we trust each other, why would we expect our players to trust each other? And when you put that into a corporate environment with all the different sections of even a large business, HR, management, upper management, lower management, the the day-to-day people. The uh, they. Yeah. There's there's just so many teams within the teams, and they all represent something to each other. Now, one of the nice things about sports, as you alluded to, is, you know, we get to wear a jersey. We're all wearing the same uniform. Uh, The military takes the same approach. You know, the military's approach is we have to accomplish the mission. That's all that matters at the end of the day, you know, when when you go to the military. And I like that approach with everything. And then applying the things to make people believe in that mission is what we're talking about right now. And again, it comes down to a communication structure as well. That's another big overarch of, 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 of a bond is you have to have a very clear communication structure for your group in terms of how communication flows. So for example, on a sports team, 
Uh, everybody can talk to each other. There's not like you can't go talk to the head coach if you're a player or something like that. But I always say if there's an issue, if there's a problem, the head coach talks to the captains, the captains talk to the players, and that's reverse players to the captains to the coach. So the players should feel comfortable going to my captains and saying, look, I have a problem. And then if the captain doesn't feel like he should be able to handle that, he can then go to the coach. It saves a lot of miscommunication. It saves a lot of wasted time. Uh, it empowers your leaders on the team in terms of captains or in, in corporate America or corporate business, as I say, this would be middle management to top management. And there's a clear structure in place for how that's supposed to flow. Um, the final thing I was going to say is that, uh, and, and we both just talked about this, is uh, accountability, trust, all these words. Uh, another mistake people make is, oh, we, we've done a course at the beginning of the quarter, so we did it, and that's <laughs> it. Yes, uh, right. you know, yeah, yeah, right. you, This is something that, that almo- I, I'd almost say monthly to weekly should be done. Well, whether people necessarily want to do it or not is, is, is irrelevant. It's something that you need to continually revisit and reinvigorate and find the things that are making you guys and ladies drive together. Uh, and a sports season, and I talk about this in the book, it's impossible to go through the sports season without some sort of, of, of lull, I call it, down, down play, where there's a losing streak or you lose a few games in a row. Uh, I know in ice hockey, it tends to happen around the holidays. You know, you miss yeah. your family. You, you know, you've been playing for four months straight. You're beat up. You might not want to do it anymore. So, you know, preemptive action, prepare for that situation. Know that your team is going to need a little bit of a mental boost at that time. Don't, don't just wait for it to happen. That's no different in corporate America. I'm sorry, corporations in the world. I'm just used to saying corporate America. It's no different. You, you can predict a lot of these behaviors before they happen and, and prevent them, or at least, as I said, reinvigorate the group to continue forward. Plan for the predictable surprise and make candor and trust and talking about these things part of how you do business every day. But Linda, I know you've got another question for Lee. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you talk about this hierarchy of uh, communication and I think it's very important. I think a lot of corporations uh, globally really miss the mark when it comes to communication and really don't leverage the communication process. They think, to your point, you know, oh, we just did a course on this, or we had a town hall meeting, or I sent out a memo, or, you know, it was in the newsletter. And what? I did a what? PowerPoint. <laughs> I was in a PowerPoint. What, what, what? Don't yeah. you get it? You know, and they don't really realize how important the conversation is and the relationship yeah. building part of, of communication. But the real thought that I have is if, you know, you talk about cancer in uh, the locker room. And, you know, if you have a cancer in the locker room, that's going to break that bond of communication. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So in sports, it's kind of every fear. We, we, we call it a cancer in the locker room, as you just said. And that typically means uh, a player or a group of players that are causing problems or dissenting or doing something that's affecting the team in a negative way. And there's a lot of ways this can represent itself. Sometimes it's uh, you know bad attitude. Sometimes it's uh, big head. Uh, uh, no matter how it shows itself, uh, the coaches and and the leaders that have plans in place to fix this situation tend to do well. Now, just to say this, you know the the bonds that I, that are built that I build. That's that's what I always say I do for teams. I build bonds. The bond is extremely strong, but it's also very fragile. And I've always uh, equated it, I say to people, I build glass houses, that it's the most beautiful house you've ever seen. But if you take a hammer to it and tap it, you, the whole thing can come down if you're not Yeah, the paradoxes, the polarities. <laughs> exactly. So I say that you have to protect that group at all costs. So the first thing that I do when there is a cancer on the team, or if I feel 
that uh, something is out of place is I don't try and point it out and say, you're screwing up the team and it's your fault. I try and find the root of it because nine times out of 10, it's not what's being conveyed. It's something deep in that person's personality or it's something that, that they don't feel comfortable talking about. Uh, you know, For example, a player might not be getting uh, in ice hockey his ice time. He's not playing enough shifts in a game from his point of view. And he doesn't say anything to anybody and that stews for weeks and months and all of a sudden, coach is horrible because he doesn't play me. Well, I try and nip that right at the start. I try and give people roles before the season. You may not play a lot this season, but this is your role on the team. That's the first prevention way of doing things. Just make sure everybody understands their roles. I've always said on a sports team, to not have a role on a sports team is the, is the same thing as having a job with no job title, right? What, what am I doing here? You know, that's, that's the first preventative method. When it does happen, if it gets to the point where it is happening, I try and have first enable my leaders. I let my captains speak to that person, find out if there's something wrong. And if the captains feel like it's going to grow beyond a certain point, then I speak to that person or the head coach will speak to that person and try and include them back into the group. Now, if it gets to a point where that person's behavior is really harming the team, I, it's a zero tolerance rule for me. Uh, I move them out of the way. I've had several situations in my coaching career where I've, I've taken players off the team because they've threatened the group. And nine times out of 10, the group understands that was a threat to this group. That person should not be there. Personal feelings aside for that person aside, the team is what's most important. So that, that's how I tend to approach it. But every, every situation, every cancer is a little bit different. Yeah, a question for you. Um, we're we're going to take a break, uh, but when we come back, I want to talk with you a little bit, uh, Mor- Morag and I, about what you see as the biggest threats to teams. What, what do people have to really watch out for in order to make sure that the relationships and the bonds are, are, are really effective? So stay with us. We're talking to Lee Elias. We're talking about his new book, Win. If you haven't gotten a copy of it, get one. It's a great uh, insight into what you need to do to have winning teams for the 21st century that are fast, agile, and can really deliver on the results and on the goals that you're looking for. So stay with us. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. Thank you for staying with us. Linda and I are having a fantastic conversation with Lee Elias, professional hockey coach and author of Win, What Every Team Needs to Know to Create a Championship Culture. And before we went to break, we were starting to ask about what do you see as the biggest threat to teams and team success? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And the the answer often surprises people, at least from what my point of view of what the answer is. And uh, I always say the greatest threat to any team is actually the person running the team. So the person who's putting all the rules in place and the person that is establishing trust and accountability and communication and leadership, that person can become the greatest threat to the team by doing something as simple as breaking your own rules or bending Mm. your own rules. 
Yeah. And we see this in sport all the time. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, I, it's a scenario that I always present to coaches when I'm speaking or teaching or, or running a team is that what happens when you have the best player and your best player is so good that you're, you, you feel that he is driving your team to success or it, it, let's just say he's in college and he's failing and you know, you can play that player to the end of the quarter with no repercussions and he's going to help you win games. Uh, it's a scenario I present all, present all the time. And I tell coaches, you're not crazy if you consider doing this. You're just crazy if you do it. <laughs> and, and I've seen scenarios where coaches do this. And the question, what are you sacrificing? You're sacrificing everything you've built in that team bond. You're telling every player on the team that the rules that I've created for this team do not apply to me. And, and how is, is your team supposed to continue forward if that, and we said this before, trust has been broken? How can they move forward? So coaches and leaders sometimes feel that the rules don't apply to me or that I can make these decisions. And the, and the truth is you must follow your own rules. You have the, the honor of making the rule set or helping to create these rules set. That's, that's real leadership power to me. But you must abide within your own rule sets. And if, if something has to be bent or broken, you know, not only should you not consider it, but in the, in the extreme case, you should, you should discuss that with the group. So the biggest threat to any team, from my point of view, is the person running the team. Um, the second biggest threat is inaction. Mm-hmm. Is when, when you know something's happening and you just decide, oh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Uh, the, the longer you let that fester, this is why we use the word cancer. Because if it festers, it grows and it will eventually take you out. Uh, you want to be aggressive with your treatment. You want to be aggressive with finding solutions. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're doing it in the right environment to uh, breed the best results. Yeah, you know, it's 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 fascinating that you say that because a lot of uh, business people will say, uh, you know, well, that person delivers great results and, uh, you know, but they're toxic, they break yeah. the rules, they don't live by the rules, and the, the senior leader looks the other way. And, you know, taking your analogy and applying it to leaders, you know, who you promote, who you hire says volumes to everybody in the organization about what you really value and what you don't value. So, you know, people look at your behavior and the decisions that you make, not necessarily what you say or you espouse. They look at really what you do about it. So if you're talking about a rule and then you're breaking it constantly, you've you've just completely uh, eroded your own personal integrity. But it's a very common thing that leaders do, which I find very surprising. And it, it reinforces how all of these concepts, Lee, that you're sharing are actually intertwined. Because if I break my own rules, then there's self-accountability. Now, if I choose to break the rule, but I articulate the why of an exception, maybe that's different. But what we then see with the peer accountability or the challenging up, that can be career suicide for many people. And so we keep quiet. We see right. the mistake right. happening. And there are so many examples of accidents on Everest, the NASA and the the shuttle disasters where with hindsight and hindsight's always 2020 the <laughs> problem was known and it was either not raised for fear of repercussions or raised so softly that the warnings of impending disaster were not heard with disastrous com- um, consequences which comes all the way back then to a team of trust a team yeah. of accountability Absolutely. and those relationships where people feel empowered to yeah. put their hand up and say yes but or no. You know, an underpinning, Lee, of your, I, I just want to build on this for a second, an underpinning of a lot of your book is this concept of learning and yes. uh, all about learning. 
and where no learning takes place. And it seems to me that sort of what Morag and I are describing are places where learning is not valued. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I think that's not where your head is at all. No, I, I have actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a perspective that I love to talk about. And, uh, you know, being a coach is very much being a teacher. Uh, and, and all the great coach, coaches, Bilicek, uh, 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 NFL coaches, NBA coaches, Phil Jackson, they all say the same thing. I'm a teacher. And what you realize very quickly as a coach is that people learn in different ways. Uh, you know, I, I find it three or four different ways to be exact. So a mistake a lot of leaders make is they say, well, I told you this. Why don't you know it? <laughs> <laughs> and and right. what I find is, you know, especially with tactics, you know, when, when you, let, let's take ice hockey for an example. Uh, we have lots of set tactics. And when I say to the coaching staffs I work with are, we need to teach this in several different ways. We need to show them. We need to explain it to them. We should show them video of it, and then we need to apply it. So I say anything we want to teach, we have to do it four different ways. Um, and what do most corporations do? I held a PowerPoint session. I showed everybody. They were on the phone. I'm sure they were paying attention because they were on the phone. You know, it, it's not enough. And the other thing, too, is learning just in general. Like, let's just take everything out of it. Learning is probably one of the greatest joys of life. If you really think about life, when are you most engaged? When are you most invigorated? It's when you're learning something. So I don't understand why more corporations and more teams don't take that value and make learning exciting and fun. I'm going to teach you a skill today. I'm going to teach you something that you can apply at your job today that's going to make you better for tomorrow. Uh, you know, if you look at sales organizations, which is a great, a great example of organizations that do things very right and very wrong. Uh, the old school sales, old school sales organization is you better get a sale and you're fired. You know, it's just, yeah. I, I've seen it. I've been in that. I, 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 and I couldn't believe it when I was there, but the new one would be, let me teach you tools about how we can engage people together and make their day better make your day better and accomplish right. something together. That is, you know, talking about future proof workplaces, but that is the concept. Make learning exciting. Uh, and I could give hundreds of examples about how Apple does this or how about winning teams do this. Uh, you know, I was just, I was watching a documentary about the Patriots last year and how, how they do things together. They want to be together and learn together. And what it really comes down to is, is again, going back to the team bond. A team bond is what makes that aspect of the group possible. If it doesn't exist, it's not possible. If you don't want to be with the people around you, or you don't believe in what you're doing, you're not going to want to learn. You're not going to want to go there every day. You're just going to get up and go to your job and come home. And it's just not good enough. And, and again, you know, sometimes when I work with teams, I tell people, I, I don't need to be the head coach. My, my job is to watch the team and to find these little bits and pieces that I'm talking about so I can help you do your job. So a lot of it comes down to leadership. A lot of it comes down to teams within the team, everything we've been talking about in this conversation. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I love this quote from, and I use it all the time, and I probably will say it on every radio show uh, from Hidden Figures, uh, where the, the, the guy who was the head of NASA turned around to the next level down leader and said, your job is to find her potential. And yeah. that is the job of the leader. It was always the job of the leader, frankly, but today more than ever, it is the job of the leader to find the potential of others, unleash it and let it bloom, not squelch it. And we've had too much history in, in, in the industrial environment of squelching initiative ideas uh, of others. So it's a great point. Morag, thoughts? Well, I'm listening to Lee and thinking about finding potential. So if you could leave us, what are the three ingredients to winning? 
Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And and, and again, I, I think that for true championship caliber winning to take place, and I said this earlier, you know, one one is you have to have talent. And and that's not just talent in the sense of someone who's very skilled. It's talent in whatever that person's doing. So if it's business, it's talent at the the job they're doing and then empowering that person to be better at it. Uh, and in sports, this is generally the easiest thing to find <laughs> because yep. you can see talent. Uh the, the second is tactics. And, and uh, you know, I was blessed. I've worked on, on teams with a lot of uh, great tacticians. When I was in Peterborough, I had a, the, probably the best tactician in the league. Um, and he was able to apply those tactics to the talent uh, and make a very, very strong team. And, and I should say this. The team that we had was not the most talented by far. In fact, on a talent level, we we're probably at the bottom uh, uh, quarter of the group. But when we applied the, the most important part, in my opinion, to that thing, which is the third thing, the team bond, for the talent and the tactics to to exist in, as a group, we became the strongest team in the league. Not the strongest yep. individuals, not the strongest players. Mm-hmm. As a team, we became unstoppable. And and again, I always loved using that team in Peterborough as an example because before the the, the coaching staff and that team was put together, they were they were a ninth or tenth, the like bottom of the table team every single year for about a decade. And then all of a sudden, a championship happened out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Just one year. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and and that's the question. Well, how did that happen? Well. Read my book, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, no, but how, well to actually, how, yeah. uh, quickly, Lee, and give us the third because we're 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 running out of time. Give us the third oh, no, point. No. Yeah, it's tactics, talent, and then most importantly is a team bot. Is to create team that bond. team yeah. bot. You cannot win. Championship culture will not exist if that is not present. Yeah. Well, Lee, I I can't tell you how pleased we were to have you on the show. What a great conversation. I love your book. Morag and I love your book. Pages are turned over and things are underscored. Um, How do people get a hold of you, Lee? Uh, Yeah, a few ways. So my website just launched again. It's game7group.com, all spelled out. That's the kind of homepage for the consulting and the coaching that I do. You can also look at winthebook.us. That's the official site for the book win. Uh, And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Instagram under my name, Lee MJ Elias. Uh, feel free, anybody who would like to talk to me, I'm happy to talk to them. And I want to tell both of you that that your book, The Future uh, Proof Workplace, uh, what I love about that book is that it really brings things to the forefront that have to be spoken about that are not currently being spoken about. Uh, and every chapter heading in this book is something that I say, yes, nobody talks about this. And it's something that must be talked about. So I just wanted to tell you that I really enjoyed your book as well. And that uh, I think that obviously your listeners should have had it already. But if you don't, you should go pick it up. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> well, thank you, Lee, for that. And uh, thanks again for being with us. As always, it was a great conversation. And uh, we'll be catching up with you and see what you're doing uh, in, in about six months or so. And I, I know it'll be great things. So, Morag, next week we have uh, Tony O'Driscoll, Dr. Tony O'Driscoll from Duke Corporate Education. And we're going to have a great conversation with him. Again, talking about leadership and talking about leadership from the center and what does it mean to balance polarities and and how teaching leadership is dramatically being turned on its head because the old model of you know the sheep dip like like Lee was talking about oh you go to a course you must know how to lead uh, is, is just not working anymore and is not going to work so we, we've got to have a whole systems approach to leadership learning and it's got to be agile and fast so join us next week for our conversation with Dr. Tony O'Driscoll I think it'll be a lot of fun and the last word is yours Morag 
Well, again, if we've piqued your curiosity, please do order a copy of Lee's book, Win, but also check out the Future Proof Workplace, <clears throat> excuse me, available from all good retailers and through futureproofworkplace.com. But it's been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you for joining us. See you all and hear you all next week. Next week. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.